Basketball is a staple activity in New York City. From large venues like Madison Square Garden to local neighborhood courts, you're bound to find a game of hoops going on. This week on Cityscape, we're stepping off the court and taking a look at it from behind the lens. Hi, I'm George Boldarki. Larry Rassiopo is a New York City-based photographer. He's a regular guest on Cityscape, and this time he's here to talk about his new book, B-Ball NYC. It features basketball courts in all five boroughs of New York City, from traditional hoops to even some homemade ones, some dating back decades. Larry, nice to see you again. Hey, George, good to see you again. Good to see you, a repeat guest here on Cityscape. So for those who do not know you, take us back, Larry. Where in New York City did you grow up? I grew up in the edge of Park Slope, which is now called the South Slope. And my family moved to Sunset Park when they built the Prospect Expressway. How big of a role did basketball play in your childhood? Uh, I played a real lot. I mean, I was like, wasn't really that good. I was, like I say in my essay, too slow for the backcourt and not big enough for the frontcourt. But I really loved the game. I had a good sense of when to pass, when to shoot. And it was a game you can play with a minimal amount of equipment. All you needed was a ball and a few friends. And if you couldn't find anyone to play with, you could just practice your shots. And it was a thing I could always do almost anywhere. Where would you play specifically in Brooklyn? Oh, I learned how to, learned to play in a little schoolyard at Dewey Junior High School in Sunset Park. And then I started playing with a few friends, and we'd play anywhere we could. Sometimes you'd drive out to Manhattan Beach in the summer, which was great, because you'd play until you got really tired, then go for a swim. I played on my intramural uh, high school team. You know, Zavarian had a very big intramural program, and every class had a team, and we won two championships. That was pretty good, but I couldn't quite make the varsity. But I just love to play. It's a game that um, you just jump in and play. I uh, went cross-country with a friend of mine, and we played everywhere we could. And one of my favorite games is we were in New Orleans watching some kids play, and they said, hey, you want to come in and play? We, we had our sneakers in the trunk of his car. We got our sneakers and got into this full court game. We were the only two white people, all black teenagers. People were great. One of the people in my book is Bobito Garcia, and he has a book called Rock Rubber Soul, and he talks about in his film how basketball brings people together. Anyone who can play can play. Yeah, how did it bring people together in your neighborhood? Did you have people from different walks of life on the court? Well, yeah, in my neighborhood was mostly like Italian, Irish, and Latino, and we would play. And you just, whoever was there could play, you play, and the big thing in New York is uh, when you have a schoolyard game, very often it's four on four, and someone says they have next, and these games get very intense at the end of the game because you want to stay on the court. If you lose, you might wait a half an hour to play again. So don't cry foul, right? Don't call foul. That's a, a big thing because in the, in the street game, if you call foul while you're shooting, you keep the ball, but if the basket goes in, it doesn't count. So you have to really calculate and if you call a lot of fouls, people don't like you. <laughs> Would you say there's anything particularly unique about basketball in New York City compared to anywhere else in the U.S.? Well, I would say not that different. I mean, there's a thing now that used to be called the New York City game. Madison Square Garden long regarded itself as a mecca, but it's kind of declined. The game isn't as, um, well, like the New York professional teams aren't as good, although the Nets, they might really be coming this year. But New York was famous for all its point guards. A lot of really good point guards, from like um, Pearl Washington, Kenny Smith. All these great guards came from New York. And that was like the legend of New York, that you could play really smart. Basketball is a game where if you play to your abilities and don't do things you can't do well, you can play well. 
you can get tricked into shooting further out than is your normal range and doing things you can't do. Handle the ball when you shouldn't. But if you play within your limitations, people love to play with you. And if you like to pass and you don't like to shoot a lot, people really like you. There's a derogative term called chucker. What does that mean? Where someone who shoots the ball all the time, no matter what, whether it's a high percentage shot, low percentage shot, time of game. There's even an episode on Seinfeld where they call George Hmm. a chucker and he protests vehemently. What are the types of games you would play when you were a kid? In addition to basketball? or Well, the types yeah. of basketball oh, games, right? They all have different be, names. It would be the number of people who could play would be two-on-two, three-on-three, four-on-four. And sometimes you would just shoot, and there was a great game called Taps, where someone would shoot, and you would try and tap the ball under the basket. Like, you'd be rebounding and just tap the ball back. Because you jump up, hit the ball with your hand before your feet came down. And that would be great practice for rebounding. And then... If you got it in, then you'd go to the foul line and you'd practice your foul shots, which is a big key part of the game. There's a big difference maker if you shoot like 80% of your foul shots versus 60%. The, the higher the level, the bigger and more important the free throw shooting is. And then you play all these games like horse, which you have to do. Uh, so I would do a shot, like a, a running jump shot, two dribbles and jump. You would have to match that shot. If you matched it, we kept playing. If you didn't, you get the letter H. And then H-O-R-S-E, you're out of the game. And there's many variations of that in different neighborhoods, different names. In Barbito's poem, The Playground, for those who know, he calls out all the games. And So you can also just play by yourself, just dribble and shoot. I'm going to play until I make 10 foul shots in a row. So for those not familiar with Barbito, tell us more about Barbito. Well, Barbito Garcia is like a hip-hop icon in New York City. I've followed his work for years. He had a radio show on uh, WKCR called Stretching by Beto. There's a film about it on Netflix. His, his other film, Rock Rubber Soul, is, on, is available on Amazon Prime. And he's been a legend. He's done a lot of different things all around sports and also sneaker culture. I mean, he's a very, very interesting cat. I, I, we've corresponded and spoken. I haven't met him yet. I'd asked him if he would write something for my photographs with this book. And he said, I already have a poem you might like. And he sent me the poem, and it blew me away because it rang so true. He talks about getting knocked out, which has happened to me. I fell and hit the uh, big metal pole and got knocked out. He talks about people stealing your money. If you take your clothes off and play in your shorts, you might have your backpack or your pants, and you come back and your money's gone. Yeah, well, let's have Bobito speak for himself and play that poem now. I'm not the NBA or EuroLeague. I don't earn stacks or sign contracts. I am not high school or college. I am forever eligible. I have no agent. I make temporary verbal agreements like, yeah, I'll run with you. What's the squad? Hit or miss? All rock. Game 16 by ones. Win by two. 21 straight. Fences out. This ball sucks. There are no zebras in the zoo. And no government cheese line. I call my ball. Take it out. And do it to him again. I don't just penetrate down the lane. I take it down Death Valley. To the saucepan, the well. To the Baja. I don't just cross over. I put you in a spin cycle and rinse. I guess light. I disco, boogie, and skate on my man. I got the wiggles, the bop-bop, the whip-wop, the legal yo-yo. Don't reach unless you want to get bugged. I will crack you. I don't just steal the ball. 
I'll force you left where you have no handle. Pick your pockets and yell cookies. Boop. Give me that. I don't just score. I guess buckets. I want to cook and embarrass you and your whole squad. Hezzy, step back. Ratty from the trade wop. Ice water, bang, bang. Ha! And one. Hold that. Game. And if I so happen to take an L, I negotiate. Run it. Or who got next? You got your five? I am the soul of a sport. Thrive on asphalt. Head to toe dirty. There is nothing pretty about me. Even when I'm empty, I'm alive. I'm the well, the pit, the hole, the cage. I run every borough and own this town. I'm the park pickup player. No coach can take me out or cut me before the season starts. There is no season. I'm forever eligible. I am free. free, 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 free. So, Larry, did you make any lifelong friends on the basketball court in New York City? I have one really good friend. He now lives in Florida, but it was a strange time. I come back from California. I had dropped out of Fordham and went to California in the volunteers for, uh, in service to America program or a poverty program. I came back and all my friends were gone. So I didn't know anyone at Fordham. So I started commuting to Fordham from Brooklyn. And a guy I knew through someone else, his name was Ron Helgren. I mentioned him in the book. He had come back from Vietnam and was also kind of at, at odds and ends. And he moved back on his parents. So we basically would travel around, play, we'd go to shows, like we might go to the Fillmore, but we'd do stuff on the weekends and play basketball. And we went all over the city to play. And we, we've stayed friends, but now he's moved away. So since he left, I don't play much street ball anymore. Also, I'm too old to play. I was going to ask you the question, do you still play, but not so much. No, huh? I can't. No vertical leap. And there's a point when you play when um, you'll be on a court and someone will say, hey, mister, when the ball rolls onto your court, you say, oh, my God, I'm getting old. <laughs> <laughs> so what inspired you, Larry, to start taking photographs of hoops in New York well, City? Well, I, I think they're really beautiful. And, you know, I, I've seen them over the years, and there was a period when I was working for New York City where I was photographing a lot in, in Harlem and East New York and Brownsville, and I'd see all these baskets nailed up to trees, hanging from a fire escape. And I would just kind of see them and take a picture. I think they were really interesting, almost like a kind of folk art. And then I just accumulated them. Like there are a lot of photographers like myself who are like collectors. You might photograph something over the years, and at a certain point you realize, oh, this is really interesting. And you go back and look, and you put them all together, and you see I have 150 photographs of basketball courts or hoops. And some of the courts were very beautiful. And I would like come back with a bigger camera to do more serious photographs. Some of the photographs in the book are panoramas. And then you realize there are courts everywhere. So I had a photograph inside this naval prison before it was demolished. And on the roof was a basketball court. That was in Brooklyn? That was in Brooklyn, near the Brooklyn Navy Yard. And then another time I got I really interested in this um, island, North Brother Island, which is off the coast of the Bronx, which is where there was a big hospital complex called Riverside Hospital. Now it's a bird sanctuary. But when I went there, there was a basketball court and a, and a, and a movie theater. So all these little individual places like asylums, every, almost every institution has something like that. And all the Catholic schools I went to had, it was a combination auditorium and gym. And I would photograph those. I would use different cameras to make different sized prints. But they're all kind of very beautiful. And I started thinking about them, and then I tied them together. 
You also feature hoops at carnivals and on Coney Island. Right. I think that's that's one of those funny games where uh, there's, uh, if there's a street fair in your neighborhood, they have a little thing for basketball hoops. There's one in Coney Island, and the thing is the rims are smaller. It's like the rims are not even just tighter. They're smaller, so the odds on shooting is tricky. And I put a few of those in just because they were really interesting to me, visually interesting. You've captured some that aren't hoops at all, but rather milk crates with the bottoms cut out. Right, and and uh, I have some of metal, but mostly they're just um, red, red or green plastic, and they're tacked up. Sometimes they're tied to a fence, sometimes tied to a fire escape. But if you have nothing else to do, and also if you're small, these are more for younger kids. Like they don't want to leave the block; they'll play right near their house. Yeah, these makeshift hoops are nailed to trees. Yeah. All and in my places. neighborhood now, they have the, in, in Rockaway, they have uh, weighted baskets. So it'll be like a plastic bottom filled with sand. Sometimes people put uh, concrete blocks on it, and there'll be a basket on the sidewalk near the house. So the kids who don't want to go to the schoolyard or aren't ready to play can just go out and shoot. And it, it's really nice. The backboard is a little small. It's one reason why I think people don't use bank shots anymore. They're not, they don't have the right the full size like you see in a gym. What's the most unique location that you discovered a basketball hoop, would you say? I think it was a, a hospital in North Brother Island because it was very hard to get there. I, my commissioner at HPD wrote a letter to the parks commissioner, and I was allowed to go on this boat. And a month later, the boat sank, so really nobody goes out there anymore. But it's become a bird sanctuary. So can I have you talk about that role that you had with the city that led to this project while you were out there discovering these basketball courts okay. while doing another job sure. for the city? Well, that's going to be another book, but I'll, I'll gladly talk about <laughs> it. I um, was working as a carpenter in Park Slope, and then I did a job for someone who worked for the city, and she thought I did a good job, and I said, well, I'm actually a better photographer than a carpenter, and she worked at the Department of Ports and Terminals, which no longer exists. Now it's Department of Small Business. So I did some freelance work for her, and then her assistant went to the housing department, housing preservation development. And they wanted a photographer who knew construction. So it was a very funny combination of, the, of two things that I did. And I thought I hadn't had a job in years. I said, oh, I'll take it for a few months, never thinking I would love it, that it was an opportunity for me to drive around the city and do photographs of, like, real things. I photographed vacant lots, construction, rent problems, issues with squatters. And I just wound up loving the job and seeing it as an opportunity, and it broadened my horizon. So several projects arose from that, one of which was all the memorial walls that I saw throughout the city that were, I thought as you, I saw them as religious art. And then I started finding uh, abandoned movie theaters that were these incredible 3,000-seat they weren't quite the official Lowe's Wonder Theaters, but of that scale, and would say abandoned in, in Bushwick. And I would try and find ways then to get inside. And I just, the job made my career in a way. It, 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 I found it so interesting. The last time you were on the show, you were here to talk about your other book about street life in Brooklyn, right? Right, right. So I've just been at it now. I, I sometimes find it hard. I've been photographing pretty steadily, pretty seriously for almost 50 years. You also photographed after Superstorm Sandy, the devastation right. here right. in New York City. Right. I, did, I did a small book that was shown at the Museum of the City of New York called Larry's Sandy Diary. At first, my house was, was badly damaged. and I felt In Queens. In, in, right, right. I live a block from the, I live on the beach. There's one house in front of me and then there's the sand. And we were hit pretty hard, but but we survived, and 
my wife and I never left because we heat half the house with the fireplace, so we actually could stay there. And our gas line didn't break, so I had uh, gas to, to cook in a frying pan. And we had no electricity for four months. It was like an adventure. And after a while, I decided that even though it felt a little strange to photograph, I decided just to use my cell phone. And I would photograph when I walked around. I had to get gas from a uh, femur gave out gas to run our generator. You could get 10 gallons of gas a day. So I'd walk up to the gas station, which is a few blocks away at the little wagon with two five-gallon containers and my dog. And it's like something out of Little Rascals. I show my ID, I get the gas, and I walk back past the church and get a sandwich to have. And I did this for months. And um, I did this little book that actually looked, well, the book was big. I, I did just these little photographs that I made. I put them on 20 by 24-inch paper. And I made a book out of, a cover out of scrap wood. And then right at the museum, I made a table out of scrap wood. So the book looked like a big dictionary on its own standalone table and it was pretty well received it was a lot interesting to do so what are you shooting with these days well i'm pretty much i use uh digital film a lot but i still shoot with my Hasselblad when i'm shooting black and white two and a quarter film and i still have my four by five view camera which i use only for very special occasions it's just harder to do physically and it's also harder to process there's less film, less labs. I have to FedEx it into Manhattan, get it back to Rockaways. It's become a very expensive undertaking, and so I use it rarely. And the quality at the same time, the digital cameras have gotten so good, the files have gotten so big, they're almost a crossing point now, that there's not that much difference. And I, I have a really good big Epson printer that I print at home, so I'm pretty much self-contained. So I photograph and process at home and occasionally send things into Manhattan. So what were you shooting with when you were taking these b-ball photos mostly? 35-millimeter color negative, black and white 35-millimeter color negative, two and a quarter, six, four, five, six by nine, which is, so I have about, I had about 10 different cameras at the time, and I, depending on what I had with me that day. I had a wide lux camera, which is where the lens moves from left to right a little bit, and it's a negative plus a, another half of a negative. So it's very good for wide field stuff. And the panoramas are special. I would come with a tripod, and that negative is two and a quarter by six and three quarters. So it's a really it's based on a camera that was used in the West. The photos in this book date back to the nineteen seventies right. and take us through what, like the early two thousands? Up up to up to last year. There are eighty two photos in the book, about ten with my cell phone. So I I'm a pretty good printer and I can make a sixteen by twenty print from a cell phone photo without doing it too hard. I've been printing for a very long time. It's a craft that you learn. It can be very tedious. So now instead of standing in front of a sink of chemicals, I'm sitting in front of the computer. But it's it's very rewarding because at the end of the day, you have something right there. You have something to show. I mean, a lot of people still buy prints, still use prints. I think books are really a great medium for photography. Uh, one of the things we haven't talked about yet is Dan Barry's essay. Yes, Dan Barry's essay, which kicks off this book. Right. Dan Barry, a columnist, reporter with the New York Times, long time. Right. He's a super writer. His latest book, which is uh, came out last year, is called This Land, a collection of his essays. And he teamed with a very good photographer from the New York Times, Angel Franco. And it's a beautiful book. Very uh, excellent personal stories. And I had this idea that these photographs were worthwhile. So I actually, on a whim, sent a portfolio into the New York Times Sports Department. And they wrote back to me saying, yes, we'd like these. We'd like to publish them. We'll give you a little honorarium. And it's going to be in the paper next Saturday. So I got the paper, and there was Dan Barry's essay 
called Hoop Spring Eternal, which I thought, again, was like spot on. It really talks about when you walk down the street as an adult, you'll see a hoop and you're like, I wish I had time to have a ball and could shoot for a while and play. It, he really captured that real feeling. And then he wrote about something that is also true, that a lot of these, uh, the photographs in the book, the courts would be next to an RIP memorial wall. And we see these names of mostly young men who died way too young. And sometimes they'll have some funny sayings on the court. One says, respect, please. Another one says, I love when they call me Big Papa. And there's all different things. One of my favorites is a lamppost with a, one of those milk cartons nailed to it. And it's an abandoned building, and there's a stoop, and someone has two car seats. They're like high-end courtside seats to watch the game. So the book really shows a lot of different places, but the essay really complements it, as, as does the poem. And Dan Barry was kind enough to record that essay for us, and let's play that now. There it hangs, another basketball hoop built into the brick of the city, probably without a net, maybe bent a little at the front of the rim, maybe nothing more than a milk crate hammered into a plywood backboard. But it speaks to you. Yeah, you. Others might not hear the hoop, but you do. It's not inviting you to take an open jump shot so much as it is daring you, defying you. You think you got game, it asks? Well, here I am, chump. You ache to accept the challenge, no matter that you're in a suit and on your way to a funeral or about to embark on that daddy-daughter-mommy-son outing weeks in the planning. Your mind spins to find a plausible justification for this basketball interruption but neither the grieving nor the young would understand that in the end, an inanimate object had called you out. So you pass the hoop by, pretending not to hear its taunts. You don't want to give it the satisfaction. I'll be back, you mutter, and the hoop answers, chump. These are heady days for the basketball adult of New York. This year, for the first time, the city has two teams in the NBA, the New York Knicks and those Long Island transplants by way of New Jersey, the Brooklyn Nets. Of course, two teams could mean double the metropolitan heartache come springtime. But we're still at the start of the season when every half-court chuck of the mind goes in at the buzzer. Besides, city basketball lives apart from even in spite of these professional teams playing in rarefied indoor gardens where millionaires scramble beneath hoops designed by Croasis. The true hoops of the city beckon from housing project walls and glass-flecked lots where urgent snow shoveling has scarred the ground but cleared the way for another game. From lonesome urban trees and the asphalt beaches by the sea where a jump shot's arc must be calibrated to the ocean's steady breeze. Instead of nets of virginal white, nets that appear to be bleached and washed after every game like your great-grandmother's dainties, the nets might be chains that reward every basket with a sound like the spilling of coins, a one-armed bandit's payout. And instead of fans watching from seats that cost more than a regular chump's weekly salary, the spectators are the hungry clutches who have called next, commingling with the ghosts of those taken out by the brutality of the real game. The spray-painted prayers for their eternal rest adorn the bleachers, the pavement, the backboard, 
with every bank shot an amen. By the official rules of the game, a basketball hoop must be 18 inches in diameter and 10 feet off the ground. But the players of this city do not always have the patience or the resources to follow the rules of basketball, or for that matter, any other endeavor. A rim then can be bent, having surrendered to the dangling of a triumphant dunker. It can be rectangular, accommodating not two basketballs, but four gallons of milk. And it can be nine feet, eight feet, six feet high, so that all of us can jam our hopes through a rim open to the imagination. A basketball hoop at rest can appear to be abandoned. It can look so forlorn, so unloved, like a huge cross before which no one kneels. This is a con. That hoop lives until it collapses one day under the powerful force of someone's dunked dream. So the lesson is, carry a basketball with you at all times, chump. So what is featured on the cover of your book, B-Ball NYC? Oh, the cover on that book is, a, is an abandoned building, which is now, I'm sure, since been renovated in East New York. I'm sorry, Crown Heights. And in it is, in a crack between the buildings, someone put a, a two-by-four or two-by-six, nailed a piece of plywood to it, and there's a hoopless rim. But on the backboard, it says NBA. And several of these photographs have that connection, the idea of making it to the NBA. It's you know beyond fantasy. Professional sports is the ultimate meritocracy. It is so hard to get there, even to, to get a cup of coffee, let alone have a real career. And you'll see this NBA imagery in several places in, in, the, in the photographs. Sometimes there'll be like a, a lamppost with a court nail to it, but there'll be a full foul line, and we'll see NBA. And in, uh, in Barbito's poem, he talks about you can play college for X number of years, professional so many years, but you can always play in the playground. One thing that I noticed is a majority of the photos in this book do not include people playing basketball. These are either empty or abandoned places. Right. That has to do with when I was taking the pictures. I would be on my way to a place and I'd see a court and I'd say, I gotta take a picture of this court to get back in the car and keep going. Sometimes the court was right where I was photographing. If you see a basket in front of an empty lot, I was photographing the empty lot for my job with the city and I photographed the basket for me. And one of the things about the job, it got me out of South Brooklyn where I grew up in Sunset Park into all these other neighborhoods that I probably would not have spent much time in. And I found it fascinating. It was a real eye opener. And I, I, Semi-fluent in Spanish. I'm a big guy, so I didn't feel intimidated. I treat people very respectfully, and I was treated the same way. It was always very interesting talking to people. I would see something. For example, I photographed, and one of the photographs is a court. It's a panorama. It's two pages, and there's a broken basket, and there's a big graffiti LC, and there's a plywood fence. It's a vacant lot, and behind is another vacant lot, and behind that you can just see the top of a sign, and the sign says, the Lost Boys, Dead Homies, and it's something that was in my word on the street book. Everything was in these same neighborhoods. I mean, it was now they're very different. They're so gentrified. It's incredible. Fair to say this is a very important project to you, right? This is a self-published book. Yeah. I had a pretty good... This is my fourth book, the first one that I'm self-publishing. I've had really good luck with people coming to me. My first book was called Halloween. I had a show in a small gallery in the Lower East Side in 1980, and an editor from Scribner's came and said, we'd like to publish a book of your photographs. I was like, okay. Hmm. 
and we wait, it was so long ago, we waited until the show came down. They had a big process camera. They actually photographed the prints that were in the show and made it into a book. And I got a little advanced, and basically that's all I ever got. But this book is still out there. I, um, every Halloween, I get some interest in it. But this book I liked so much. And uh, my last book was published by uh, Cornell University Press called Brooklyn Before. It was photographs of uh, South Brooklyn before the gentrification. And I really thought Cornell was going to publish it. And I still don't understand why they didn't, because I think this book is going to be a seller. It's a topic that everyone, many people in New York relate to. Basketball season is just starting. Kids play this from every age, son or daughter or something. Women's basketball is like so gigantic compared to when I was young. And I think it's gonna, I think it's gonna work. And I really um, probably wouldn't have done the book if I didn't have Dan Barry's essay and Barbito's poem. I think they really make it very special. I mean, the photographs are good, but they're not like unbelievable photographs. But I think together with the story and the poem, it, it's really a very nice thing to have. I mean, there's no question that these makeshift basketball courts that you depict in this book really show people's appreciation for the sport. The fact that they're just sort of putting up a backboard, they're putting up a milk crate to play the sport. Yeah, I think it's a, it's an engaging game. You don't need a lot of equipment and you don't need a lot of people. Well, the book is B-Ball NYC. Larry Resiopo, always a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, George. You can learn more about photographer Larry Resiopo and his work at LarryResiopo.com. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Maddie Bristow. Our music is courtesy of Chad Crouch. If you liked this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to Cityscape on Apple Podcasts. You can also listen to Cityscape on Spotify, Google Play, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. Make sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at WFUV Cityscape to stay up to date between episodes. Thanks so much for listening.